Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Crisis Management, the podcast edition. I'm Alicia Sikirska. Last week, G7 nations struck a historic deal that could have major implications for companies around the world. Finance leaders from countries, including the U.S. and Canada, have agreed to a global minimum corporate tax rate. That means companies like Google, Facebook, and Amazon would have to pay a corporate tax rate of at least 15%. The aim is to discourage companies from fleeing to low-tax jurisdictions and to force them to pay taxes where they work. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said this deal will help end the race to the bottom for global tax rates. On our live stream video program, Sean Spear from the Public Policy Forum and I talked about tax reform. I asked Sean about the G7 tax deal and whether he thought it was going to be truly transformational for the global economy. Here's what he had to say on the show. Well, it's a pretty big deal, that's for sure. Um, You know, so basically... Uh, in a nutshell, what's happened here is G7 countries have agreed um, to have a minimum floor of a 15% corporate tax rate. So, you know, countries can have higher rates than that if they choose based on their own political priorities and preferences. Um, but they've all agreed to basically hold their hands together and uh, and not go below 15%. Um, and, you know, one wonders if that um, new kind of global taxation floor spreads beyond just the G7, and we see other countries kind of choose to participate. And in so doing, kind of minimize the risk of, um, you know, what's sometimes referred to as tax shopping. So different corporations um, moving assets or um, or profits or losses, you know, around the globe in search of um, the lowest level of taxation, which is you know, I think a concern that policymakers have had for some time. It's sometimes, you know, in particular, this idea of what's sometimes referred to as base erosion. So you start to experience revenue losses because um, companies are moving assets, profits or losses around, not for kind of commercial reasons, but just simply in search of of low taxes. So, you know, in that regard, Alicia, this does represent, uh, you know, I think a pretty significant um, uh, agreement on part of G7 leaders and a you know, kind of sign of, you know, the Biden administration's um, progressive influence over, you know, multilateral policymaking. Um, And, you know, there's no doubt that this will be a big part of the conversation at this weekend's G7 leaders meeting where Mr. Biden will attend for the he's attended in the past in these sessions as the vice president, but he'll be attending, of course, for the first time as the president. And by all accounts, um, is determined to sort of, you know, restore uh, Americans place, you know, in these global multilateral arrangements after what was perceived as the kind of withdrawal of American leadership um, under the Trump administration. You've certainly seen Biden and Yellen, of course, uh, pushing that 
they want to prevent this race to the bottom in terms of tax rates. And, and they have been very much leading the charge, as you say, among the G7 countries. Um, but this is going to have to require buy-in from more than just these seven nations, the G20 in particular. Uh, I know that they're looking towards those countries to see if they'll get that buy-in. But how do you get that buy-in uh, into something that potentially takes away, say, a competitive advantage that you have by offering a lower corporate tax rate? It's a great question. Um, you know, and I, I suppose it's worth emphasizing for viewers that the Canadian government, as a member of the G7, signed on to last week's deal. So, you know, Canada is amongst the countries that will ostensibly be promoting and advancing this idea of a, a kind of minimum taxation floor amongst uh, global economies. You know, for Canada, it's been interesting, Alicia. So the 15% uh, amount that was set actually aligns with our current federal corporate tax rate. So, you know, on one hand, the need to conform to this new global arrangement won't necessarily require kind of any uh, immediate policy action on the part of the Canadian government. But the Conservative Party, the official opposition has criticized Canada's um, agreement uh, to participate in this new arrangement on, on, on the precise grounds that you raised, this idea that um, relinquishing an ability to lower corporate tax rates in the name of competitiveness harms uh, both our kind of national sovereignty um, in the sense that we're giving up this uh, ability to an international arrangement, and then secondly, kind of removes from our toolkit one of the tools that jurisdictions like Canada might use to try to attract investment and and product mandates and so on. So it's a pretty complicated public policy question to say nothing of the politics. But, you know, I think policymakers at the G7 have seen what many viewers have seen, which is, you know, major corporations earning windfill massive profits in the context of COVID-19, um, not paying a lot in taxes. And, you know, I think something was bound to give. And, and in this case, you know, given the leadership of the Biden administration on this question, I think it will have an effect. I think we will see other jurisdictions agree to sign on to um, to the plan. Interesting. And one of the cases actually that's cited quite a bit when we're talking about tax policy is Amazon, uh, which paid, you'll recall, zero dollars in federal taxes in 2017 and 2018. And then in 2019 paid just 162 million in federal taxes on a year that it earned 13.9 billion in pre-tax income. This is all from a CNBC story, which equals a rate of 1.2%. So, uh, I mean, who who do you see stands to win here with this kind of policy and who potentially stands to lose? Well, um, so jurisdictions that have relatively high corporate tax rates now, the kind of economic costs of having those rates will be minimized. And, you know, one could say that the Biden administration's motivations here are well-intended and they're about kind of fairness and equity and so on. But it's also the case that they want to raise taxes, um, given the ambition of their spending. And so getting other jurisdictions to sign on to a, a minimum tax rate will minimize the sort of economic costs or the competitiveness costs of the Biden administration's tax hike. So, you know, they're not completely kind of pure of heart here. There's there's a degree of self-interest. But it'll be jurisdictions. You mentioned Ireland. Ireland has made a low corporate tax rate a key part of its kind of competitiveness agenda and it's and the way it positions itself vis-a-vis uh, -vis other jurisdictions. So it'll be countries like that that have used low corporate tax rates as part of their kind of overall value proposition who will be 
uh, most affected. And then, of course, uh, those corporations that have benefited from this um, process of ongoing tax competitiveness um, amongst different countries. So as Sean explained on our video show, this is just the latest move by the Biden administration on global policy. And it's a pretty significant shift from the previous Trump administration's approach, to say the least. So after we wrapped up the live stream show, we dug a little deeper into that changing role for the United States. I asked Sean what he thinks this tax deal says about Biden's leadership on the world stage. Well, a couple of things, uh, Alicia. The first is this is a divergence from the Trump administration's sort of aversion to multilateralism. So, you know, the fact that um, the Biden administration is working through the G7 to secure um, a multilateral agreement on taxation is a kind of self-evident departure from the Trump administration's tendency to sort of go it alone um, or to work on a a sort of transactional one-on-one sort of way. The the second um, thing I think it tells us is that um, the Biden administration intends to use multilateral institutions to advance um, progressive priorities. You know, in this case, it's the progressive priority of raising corporate tax rates um, so as to ensure that large multinational corporations are paying their kind of quote fair share. Um, But I think we'll see the Biden administration advance other progressive priorities through um, multilateral actions, including climate change and uh, a whole host of other uh, other issues that you know probably didn't get a lot of um, prioritization or attention under the Trump administration, but that animates um, progressives within the United States, but also in other jurisdictions. Uh, another example of that, of course, is the announcement just in the past day or so. Um, that the Biden administration is going to donate something approximating half a trillion dollars worth of vaccines to developing countries around around the world. So, you know, I guess in some, I would say, you know, first, this is a kind of return to a more multilateral approach than we saw um, under the Trump administration. And two, you know, it's reflects, um, you know, I think the level of ambition that the Biden administration has on a set of progressive policy priorities that it's displayed in its domestic policy agenda, um, but that it is now um, bringing to the realm of um, international um, policymaking. You know, I think for Canada, that bodes well. We have uh, our own progressive government that shares, you know, many of the same kind of ideological predispositions with the Biden administration. And one can't help but think that there is room for cooperation on not just this tax deal, um, but on a set of other issues where there's not only there's not only binational interest, there's also a kind of ideological interest between the two leaders of our countries. Right. But before we jump into what this means for Canada, I want to talk more about that domestic that Biden is using multilateralism to also achieve goals at home. With the Trump administration, we saw a focus on America first, make America great again. And there still is an appetite, you know, for that kind of policy. So how does Biden strike the balance between prioritizing Americans and making that return to multilateralism to achieve domestic policy? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. In effect, um, you know, how, do, how does it balance these two competing priorities of the administration? The first to 
um, you know, advance an economic agenda focused on the kind of interest of um, American workers, um, and on the other hand, um, try to achieve its goal of signaling to the world that America is back, as I think we've heard um, the president and, and, and others within the administration declare. I'm not quite sure um, how to answer that um, satisfactorily. I think, you know, it's going to involve some trade-offs for the administration. I think ultimately its multilateralism will be as as much kind of stylistic and symbolic as it is substantive. You know, just having a kind of more collaborative message and poise will be well-received by other countries who, you know, grew tired and frustrated with the Trump administration's approach. But I think you're I think I think you bring up a really important point, which is to say, you know, notwithstanding some of the style and symbolism, at its core, there's a degree of continuity between the Trump administration and the Biden administration on issues like Buy America, for instance. And, you know, for that reason, one wonders if other global leaders will be reluctant to kind of fully sign on to the Biden multilateral agenda because they know, you know, that it's it, it comes with a number of caveats. Right. So how, what does this mean for Canada's relationship with the U.S. as it ter- makes that return to multilateralism? Well, I mentioned earlier, uh, Alicia, that there are uh, there's alignment in two ways. I think the first is, you know, it's often the case that we have alignment with the U.S. on kind of shared interests and shared priorities whether it's climate change, whether it's reshoring and, and addressing the kind of decline in, in domestic capacity that's occurred, you know, in recent decades, it's mostly become concentrated in countries like China. So I, I think you'll see room for significant collaboration on those issues. And then there's the second point I raised about the, you know, the extent to which there is a kind of ideological alignment between the Biden administration and the Trudeau government. And, um, you know, one thing that listeners might be interested in is the extent to which oftentimes these, you know, progress in these areas is is shaped by interpersonal relationships, not just between the two leaders, um, but also at the cabinet or staff level. There's only a couple degrees of separation here, Alicia, between the Trudeau-led Liberal Party and the Biden-led Democratic Party. Uh, Joe Biden's campaign manager um, in the last um, presidential election has at different times advised uh, the Liberal Party of Canada. Um, Christia Freeland, of course, is someone who has a lot of relationships in kind of the world of um, progressive U.S. politics. So, you know, just at a kind of personal level, the difference between the Trudeau government's relationship and the Biden administration and its relationship with the Trump administration, you know, couldn't really be any different. Um, And so, you know, there's always going to be issues. I don't want to minimize those, but I just can't help but think when you look at the alignment on policy and the alignment on ideology and the alignment on kind of personalities, that there should be scope for kind of significant collaboration. In effect, breathing kind of new life into the Canada-US relationship in a way that we haven't seen for some time. Yeah, I think back to uh, when Canada, US and Mexico were renegotiating the NAFTA agreement and just the kind of tumultuous week to week negotiation process uh, and clearly tensions between Freeland and the Trump administration. Clearly, the situation has changed in terms of those relationships, as you mentioned. 
but so given there is so much cooperation or opportunity for cooperation here, what are the other areas uh, that you expect going forward to see Canada and the U.S. work together on in addition to tax reform? Let, let me just give you a couple of specific ones. Um, you know, both Canada and the U.S. have signaled as part of their net zero strategies um, a prioritization of scaling electric vehicle production. Uh, Canada has some of the key mineral inputs um, into electric vehicle batteries. And so there's just, a, it seems to me, an obvious partnership opportunity between Canada and the U.S. in a electric vehicle strategy, you know, that, that um, has a lot of the key supply chain inputs um, within our continental borders. Um, that's one. You know, we've talked in the past, Alicia, about kind of rethinking our relationship with China. You know, it sounds like Prime, uh, President Biden is going to be seeking support amongst G7 leaders for a kind of new strategy vis-a-vis China. Uh, a lot of the issues that the U.S. has with China are issues that we share, whether it's corporate espionage or intellectual property theft or dumping and countervailing, all of the sort of things that we've talked about in the past. It seems to me there's tremendous opportunity for Canada to partner with the Biden administrations on, on kind of rethinking our economic and geopolitical relationship with China. So those would be two electric vehicles in China, um, you know, and there are countless others um, where um, I I think uh, the Trudeau government needs to kind of lean in to the relationship with the Biden administration. You you know, I mentioned earlier that um, the Canada-U.S. relationship has kind of lost a bit of energy. You know, it wasn't just the Trump administration. There were, you know, I think, distant relationship between the Harper government and the Obama administration. Um, You know, the kind of lack of progress on big Canada-U.S. partnership is now dating back well over a decade. Um, And so, yeah, one wonders if um, for some of the reasons that we've discussed here, um, this represents a kind of opportunity to breathe new life into the Canada-U.S. relationship and sort of modernize some of the institutions around kind of continental partnership and collaboration. Well, we'll definitely be watching how this relationship evolves, especially as we begin to reopen our economies and hopefully reopen that Canada-US border. Sean, thank you so much for the conversation. Thanks, Alicia, as always. Okay, that's all for today. You can find the latest video episodes of Crisis Management on the Yahoo Finance Canada website. And if you'd like to hear more of the exclusive content in this podcast, make sure you subscribe. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.